Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. Bill Roden here in a quiet, serene, undisclosed location uh, somewhere in New York State. And uh, holding it down in beautiful midtown Manhattan is the great Jamal Murphy. Murph, what's happening today? What's going on, Bill? It's a beautiful day uh, out here in Manhattan. And, of course, a lot going on in the sports world. Glad glad you could uh, join us today, Bill. Have you and Aaron dragged me in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course. Me in, but it's always a pleasure. No doubt. And we're joined today by Karen Phillips. Uh, New York Daily News columnist. Uh, you know, we're going to talk Serena today, and he wrote a, a tremendous article on July 6th about uh, Serena Williams and, and the U.S. Uh, ADA uh, testing her, you know, for steroids more than any other, athlete, any other tennis player, male or female. So we're going to get into that. Obviously, Serena uh, is in the Wimbledon semifinals, and she plays tomorrow. So uh, she's, she's uh, looking for her... What what number Wimbledon is that? I think seven, seven or eight, her seventh or eighth Wimbledon it's title. Like ninety, it's like ninety four. <laughs> uh. so, exactly, so, <laughs> exactly, something like that. Hey, well, Karen, welcome to the show, man. Thank, thanks again for being on. Well, you've been setting people on fire, man. You told ESPN wasn't black enough. Oh, and uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I mean, just. Just one after the other, man. Well, let, let me ask you something, man. So why, um, if this thing with Serena's been, people been talking about this stuff for years. It's unsubstantiated. Uh, what what prompted you to write this particular piece talking about uh, Serena being tested probably more than any tennis player on the circuit? Well, like, the, the weekend before I wrote it, like, I, I saw there was a smaller piece written about that she had been, you know, tested this many times. So then I followed up um, and reached out to USADA, the United States Anti-Dothan Agency, on my own to speak with them about it. And But I wanted to bring some context in and speak to the larger issue. And, of course, uh, you, you can't deny or you can't ignore the fact that race could be a possibility here. But I'm someone who, who pays attention to the little things because I know that sometimes those little things matter. I'm a person that really believes in that details matter. And something about this just seems off when you can go to the database yourself and just go to the URL and go to the website and type in someone's name and see that she's been tested five times. Mm. But when you type in all these other people's names, it's nowhere near that many times. And you're just thinking, okay, like I understand people have had beef with Serena because of what Serena is. She is the antithesis of what we've been taught uh, a woman's tennis player is supposed to look like, play like, uh, and carry themselves. But it gets to a certain point that, look, let's just be honest. We're talking about the greatest tennis player of all time, male or female, and that's never failed a drug, a drug test for doping or anything else like this. And if she's been tested five times this year and no one else has. Now, when the, the, the original story, how this became a story, because uh, USADA had showed up to her house unannounced, which they tend to do, to test her for the sixth time, but mm. she wasn't there. 
and she got on the phone with him, and then this got out, and this became another story. So if she would have been at home, it would have been six. Right. Now, they have the rest of the year, I guess, to kind of catch up with everybody else. But if she's at six in July, like, you can do the math on how many times, and this happened back in June. So that, that and she tweeted about it as well as I also put a column back in May. So she's been dealing with this all through 2018. And at some point, I was just like, okay, something's either they don't believe her, tennis has some secret doping scandal going on that they don't want to get out that they're scared about, or is this something that we kind of know what's really going on behind the scenes? Because previously, uh, like a month back, I wrote about this fake rivalry that the media – um, I hate saying that term being in the media, <laughs> but the media you. has created with this, with, yeah, with, <laughs> with Maria Sharapova. And I was basically saying like, look, there is no rivalry when you beat someone 18 straight times. Like that's right. not a rivalry. And, and, right. And that's, she's the one, the, the irony of that is that Sharapova was, Sharapova was the one who got busted. Right. I mean, that was, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's what's so ironic about this. There, there's layers to it. And when, like I said, you look at Sloan Stevens and Venus, right. they've been tested a couple times. Right. But you throw in some of the white players and look up their names of tennis players, and you don't see that they've been tested yet. That's when you kind of be like, oh, hmm, what's going on here? I'm trying to figure out why, you know, why would they go after, you know, the, their own their own star, their own biggest draw, you know? Like, is it is it just she looks big? Is it like they have the same stereo typical prejudice as everybody else look it, in my mind it's either they don't like her <laughs> something's going on or just because someone's the face of your sport and they're the biggest name in your sport that doesn't mean you want them to be that hmm. right. those are questions i can't answer they'll have to answer them and who knows if we'll ever get the real answers about that well nobody admits that they're racist right. you know uh with, with everybody everybody is i mean except bob mcnair <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but but at least he's honest. I mean, I think just about everybody in this country is either a racist or a recovering racist. And I think I, you're, you're more honest if you say, listen, just like you're a sexist or you're a recovering sexist. Right. But to say that this insidious disease, which has infected this country for 400 years, but you you know, like our white liberal friend, you are untouched by it. It's much more honest with your McNair where say, you know what, I'm probably going to say some racist stuff, but I'm trying to recover, <laughs> you know. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's the you know, same thing with Venus or Barry Bonds or Michael v- I mean, Just go down the line in that there's just this knee-jerk reaction about attacking black folks who climb the mountain. It's just a knee-jerk reaction in our psyche. Right. And they can't explain it. <laughs> You know, right. If I don't like it, then we just have to do it. It's in our nature. Right. It's like a subconscious racism that they don't they might not even realize they're doing. You know, we're gonna we're gonna test Serena because how is this this black woman big with muscles? How is she doing all this? How is she beating everybody else? Oh, like it's called push ups. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what it's called. It's called push ups, sit ups, all that. Just, yeah, just try better. <laughs> and you know, I think the more she wins, um, you know, you know, the more she wins the deeper the anger becomes. Like you said, you asked the question, well, why would they kill their big, you know, do their biggest star? And again, it's like, it's almost like the racism negates it. That, you know, you know, it, 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 it's just a mere sight. And remember, 
there's been an issue with her since her dad. I mean, they they've not yeah. they've been kind of crazy about not crazy about the Williams sisters and the family for a long time. But you make peace because what can you do? Because they're beating you. I mean, what what are you gonna do? You know. Like, you you can translate this to other sports. Like, you mentioned them earlier. Like, there was a – I was living down here the first time I lived in Atlanta when Michael Vick was Michael Vick. Mm-hmm. And Michael Vick was the face of the NFL. Do yeah. you think the NFL appreciated Michael Vick being the face of the NFL at that time? Nope. No. Nope. There was a nope. point when Allen Iverson was the face of the NBA. You know how much David Stern did appreciate it? He implemented a dress code. Yep. Right. Just because a star is the face of your league, yep. that doesn't necessarily mean that people want it that way. Right. And right. I think that's the case here with Serena. Yeah, I mean, because in sports, not like our profession in journalism where it's subjective, you know, basically in sports, in particular the blood sports, it's basically about who runs the fastest, who jumps the highest. So Michael Vick emerged and – what are you going to do? He's changing the face of things. You don't like it. You know, they kill. Well, they can't read it, whatever. But you cannot, you basically can't control what he's doing on the field, you know, except to just try to do it. And then, you know, when he, when he, you know, when you, when you stub your toe or you sabotage yourself, then you jump on him with full force, you know, and, you know, but there's, there's, there's really nothing, there's nothing you could do in the, in the realm of sports and play when people are successful, except to just try to wait until they fall or wait until, you know, wait until they sabotage themselves. And Serena, like like you were saying, Colin, um, you know, she's making money for people. Mm. You know, she's making money for people. Barry Bonds was making money for people. Michael Vick was making money for people. There's really nothing you could do about it except just wait. Bide your time, you know. <laughs> um mm-hmm. No. What, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, uh, how do you think this is going to play out? I don't know. It'll be something that I'm going to monitor now that I know that this website exists and I can just check the database whenever I feel like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I've learned uh, in this role the past year uh, w- with the New York media tag and, uh, attached to when I write things, me and my boss have notated that when I've called people to the rug, things have started to change. <laughs> um, so it would be interest, interesting to see um, um, how, how they go forth with this and, and if there are some more murmurings of, of testing and how that plays out in the next couple tournaments or in the next couple months as well. Well, you got to give – What's been the response uh, – I'm sorry, Jamal. No, go ahead. Uh, what's been the response generally to your work? Because it's really been an edge. I mean – we talked about, you know, the ESPN, uh, <laughs> you know, not being black enough. We talk, I mean, you really what, – what's sort of been the response in general I didn't to say they you were doing your job? <laughs> well, I didn't say they were black enough. I just asked the question. Oh, I say too black. They want the black mind. Um, yeah. um, we, we know they appreciate the black body. I just posed the question of if they appreciated the black mind. Uh, but when you write – listen, anytime – we understand anytime you write about race – uh, you're going to split the crowd mm-hmm. off rip. Uh, even people, people stop reading. They just read the headline right. or see your face uh, next to the piece. And they immediately will form opinion or stop reading or don't want to hear what you have to say. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But if you actually read it and digest it, um, you're, you're supposed to feel away. Like I, I don't necessarily agree with or like to read columnists 
who write something, and after I'm done with it, I'm like, yeah. Like, I either want to be like, okay, I get that, or they're totally wrong. Right. Or they made some valid points here. Or, oh, I didn't know that. But if you don't make me think or push me or challenge me, then you've wasted your time as a columnist to me. Like, you've wasted your platform. Um, and not understand the magnitude that comes with this platform, especially talking about race right now and sports and politics and how that's all intertwined, although we steadily try, people still trying to act like they should be separate, but you got, you know, team presidents using their their uh, team Twitter uh, profile to tweet about Supreme Court justice nominees. So you tell me um, how we're supposed to uh, break up this, this intertwining of the, of the three platforms. Uh, yeah. But to answer your question, like, people either love it or they hate it. Um, when you say something they like, they love you. If you say something they disagree with, they got beef with you. Uh, I'm I'm unbothered by it all. I sleep well at night because <laughs> um, I don't let folks bother me. Let me ask you this: who mm-hmm. who who do you who do you write for? Because you know when you get into these topics of race, mm-hmm. the racist is you know they're not they're not trying to hear logic. Like you said, they'll just attack you off rip. Um, you know, there's no there's you know bigotry trumps all logic so mm-hmm. are you writing to change minds or are you writing for for other for your people or, or everybody or what the, the people you spoke of who just aren't going to listen to you like trying to it's it's like trying to shout at a wall and tell it to move right. like you're just wasting your time and your energy but there are some other people uh in who do get it, I write for them. And mm-hmm. the people who almost get it or right. who may want to get it but right. don't know how they should go about getting it, I write for them. Like, hey, this is what's going on. This is why you're wrong, and this is how you can change it. Or these are the issues that you might have been numb to that I'm bringing to your attention. But the ones who are just lost, they just lost. and There's nothing no one could do about them. Yeah, I, I found... And I, I guess there's uh, Karen Phillips' columns for the New York Daily News. Uh, you know, wh- one thing that I found intriguing, and probably as much as my focus talk about racism, by the way, I never say we talk about race, because race is not the problem in the United States. Our problem is racism. And when you, exactly. and when you, and when you say that, people are ah, you know, race is more like a polite cocktail kind of conversation. Oh, we're going to talk about race. Oh, good. Like, we're going to talk about serving tea. You're right. No, we're going to talk about racism today. And to me, one of the more fascinating things that we really have to deal with is is our own people, African Americans, because there's been a long time. I don't think we've ever had an intellectual civil war within our community. And it's kind of gotten to the point where we got to have it, because you've got these little rivalries, you know, spouting up, whether it's... Um, Michael Eric Dyson or Cornell or Skip Gates and this one. You know, all these little petty, you know, skirmishes. It's almost like scrambling for crumbs off the white man's table, you know, and we go at each other. And to me, that is as fascinating, probably even more fascinating as, you know, the discussions about, like, we're going to talk about the NFL and that. But when you... How many? How often have you kind of gone, began to go down that dark alley about examining our own black folks' relationship with each other, whether it's, you know, 
you're an Ivy League black, or I'm an HBCU black, or you're a Martha's Vineyard black, or I'm a, you know, Projects black, or you're a Southern black. You know what I'm saying? There's just so many things yeah. that we, we really, and, and that has to be the real grappling point, I think. Well, for one, those 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 rivalries you named and those people you've named, I leave those alone because I understand that the common denominator in those rivalries is fragile male ego. <laughs> so that's on them to deal with on their own self. But, like, we are a very, if we just talking about the American, African-American black experience. Right. Like, it is a very nuanced and layered experience depending on where your people are from or what region you grew up in or where you were raised. And those conversations, if we're talking about colorism or education and things those matter, yes, I think we do need to have these conversations. Not, not, maybe not necessarily like a civil war, like you said, but we need to have like some come-to-Jesus meetings about this amongst ourselves. Right. Because the, the one thing that I'm like, look, I don't care if you grew up going to Martha's Vineyard every summer or you spent your summers, like, in summer school. <laughs> like it, me. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, like, as it, like it's, it's nuanced as I said, this experience is for us here in this country. And while we're the only ones that can understand it, there are certain just things that we inherently do in our culture that if you're African-American, like, you just innately understand. Uh, I think we get into it the most is when people try to deny those things. Right. Or people try to get upset. Like, I've always believed that there is a such thing as good stereotypes. Like, stereotypes are only a problem when they're negative. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're tall and you can't play basketball and you show up at a gym and people pick you, even though right. you're trash, which right. you know you're always going to get picked first because you're tall – you appreciate that you fell into the stereotype of being the tall black dude. Now, later, we're going to find out that you're terrible. And right. Right. Again, but you have no problem with that stereotype then. And I think that's really where we get into it, where sometimes we try so hard not to be black that sometimes we lose our blackness in that. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I don't right. eat watermelon, you know? Like, yeah, yeah I don't eat watermelon. <laughs> I'm the person who doesn't eat watermelon. It's not because, like, I don't want to fall into a stereotype. Yeah, I just it's don't like I it. I don't necessarily like watermelon. <laughs> I like watermelon-flavored things. I don't actually like the fruit watermelon. But if you give me some watermelon Kool-Aid, right. I'm good. I hear you. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I mean, for example, I, mean, I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it's really important that we dig into this. It's, it's just too bad that, you know, if you're, if you're on a sports team, you've got the closed-door locker room talk. Where you know players only, it would, what we're telling it has to be a global, humongous space where we can just lock the doors and not emerge till we come up to some type of thing about what does it mean to be African American in the 21st century, in the midway through the 21st century, and you know till we have that. But for example, you went to Morehouse, so you got you know the whole HBCU blacks versus you know, blacks who didn't go to HBCUs and what mm-hmm. they think about that. And nobody, like you said, nobody really wants to talk about it because, you know, it's easier talking about, you know, other forms of racism except our own prejudices. And that, to me, is as much of a stumbling block as, you know, taking on 
white racism. Yeah, like, I, I, listen, I inherently believe that everyone, no matter your color or nationality, has prejudices. And I understand that black people can be prejudiced. I don't believe black people can be racist. Right. We can be prejudiced. Right. And we, get, we are very prejudiced against people of our own melanin uh groups and skin tones right the, yeah, we're Just most we're most prejudiced against ourselves and, no question yeah and you're saying you just take that step forward we can't be racist. that's a that's a you say we can't be racist because that's a power dynamic right yeah that's a that 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 just like that's institutional and that affects social economics and and things of that matter prejudices maybe just because I don't really rock with you because you do this. Right. Racism is coming from a group or a core class of people that has power and privilege over someone else and the, the sheer numbers. Like, there aren't enough black people in America for us to be racist, first of all. Like, we mm. just don't have the numbers. Right. We also yeah. don't have the control. Right. <laughs> like, so that's you can't a... be racist when one of 45 presidents has been black. How? Right. You can't do that much in eight years. Right. 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 So that, it, that's aspirational. We, so we <laughs> give the power to be racist. Right. <laughs> if you really want the definition of equality, like the next 400 years, we get to run everything. Right. That's right. Right. And then we can really be racist. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of Bill Roden on Sports Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden. There you go. An absolute must-read, particularly in these days and times. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. Our guest is Karen Phillips, uh, the wonderful columnist for the New York Daily News. Um, two, two things. What did you think of the NBA playoffs? And then free agency on top of that. Uh, well, my answer to that is going to like combine both of them. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you, uh, you perfect, know, two perfect. for a dollar. Uh, I just I just wrote a column this week that kind of intertwined both of them because and it was about how I think the uh, Golden State Warriors are the luckiest team in like sports history, and that this dynasty and playoff championship run they've been on isn't as stable as people think. Uh, and to dibble in the free agency, I, I, I brought up the, the gist of the column was that they're three injuries away from possibly not having a ring. Kyrie Irving in 2015. Kawhi Leonard in 2017, and Chris Paul a couple months back. Um, if those three players are healthy, we might be talking about a team that's 0 for 4 in the final. Um, but after they lost to Cleveland, they knew they had to get better. So in free agency, they went and got Kevin Durant. This year, they barely beat Houston, and they needed Chris Paul to be hurt. And if it wasn't for J.R. Smith in game one, or the fact that George Hill always chokes in the playoffs in big moments. We don't know how that series might have turned out. And they knew the West was getting better. And then when LeBron comes West, you're like, look, we barely made it out this first time. We need to get better. So you do sign a DeMarcus Cousins. The people's beef with free agency, 
I don't understand because if I'm a free agent and I can do whatever I want because we really don't have an issue when teams shop, trade, cut, release players at will, but when the players take the power in their own hands, it's, oh, you're doing too much, you're not a champion, why are you joining up with them? Because I want to and because I can. If you look at the ratings, the ratings ain't been going down. No, yeah, the ratings Summer are great. League is, I've watched like all 8,000 Summer League games this summer. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> me too. On Twitter and social media, it's captivating because every day you got to refresh your timeline to see who got traded and who got signed. And as much as people want to complain, let's just be honest, while football might be the most popular sport in this country, no sport dominates the 12-month cycle like the NBA. Right. No question. They have figured out a way to own it. What about well, going back to your Golden State uh, being lucky thing? Um, I mean, isn't it their just their job to, to to try to get better every year, right? I mean, and also those guys yeah, and, that those guys that came that they signed wanted to go there, so it wasn't you know a lot of people have said, well, LeBron LeBron came west, and now all of a sudden you know Golden State feels like they're forced to do something because they're scared of LeBron. I mean, they're they're doing what they're supposed to do, get better every year, right? Yeah, like, you know, it, it It reminds me, I think about this, and I always think about college basketball. And I'm like, we don't get mad at college basketball programs for signing a whole bunch of All-Americans every season. Duke. So why did we get mad at pro teams for getting the best free agents they can get every offseason? Right. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you can't have it one way, but then one at the other. Right. Shout out to Marlo Sanford from The Wire. That's his quote. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, your favorite college basketball team keeps signing All-Americans and you're happy, or your favorite college football team, but you get mad at the NBA when the Warriors want to go get KD and Boogie. Like, I was just – I was shocked by it. I right. was stunned. But I was like, hey, they want to come there. Y'all got the money for it. Do it. I have no no beef with it at all. And I o- love it. And, and other teams and other organizations, other GMs need to step up their game. I mean, you should you, – it gets to the point now where you should you should try to sign a guy to make sure Golden State doesn't get him. You know, you should. Everybody who passed on Bookie, you should have thought about. Wait, you know, if we don't do this, you know, Golden State might get him, and we're all done. So, I mean, you have uh, you have to put the, the pressure on the other teams the too. Pro- the problem with that is that you're asking NBA GMs to be smart. Exactly. And if you really just pay attention to the league the last ten years, you realize that NBA GMs don't know what the hell they're doing at all. The best example to me is the Philadelphia 76ers. Everybody gave them all this praise about how the process worked. And I'm like, no, it didn't. This past season, Brett Brown came out and said, we're going to sign a superstar this offseason. They didn't sign anybody. (laughs) And I'm always like, did the process really work? Y'all picked Markel Fultz over Jason Tatum. That didn't work. This is also the same team that drafted Joel Embiid, Nerlens Noel, and Jaleel Okafor in back-to-back-to-back drafts. Right. So, like, I understand you guys got Ben Simmons and Embiid and y'all the new young, sexy team everybody likes, but I'm like, y'all could be a a whole lot further down that process if y'all didn't do so many stupid things. Right, and that process sure took a while. Yeah, well, I'm saying, you take Tatum, and if you don't pick three centers – three times in a row, and you take uh, Russell one year instead of Okafor, where would you be now? Right. You know, and this kind of switches to our last thing I want to talk to you about. As much as we talk about the NBA and 
and how they, they control the stock. The NFL is still printing money. I mean, they're printing money. And it's really the gap is huge between NBA and NFL. Although we're talking about it, the NFL prints money. But the question is, with this latest thing, you know, now the, you know, the NFLPA has finally, finally challenged owners. I wanted to get your, your sense of, 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 you know, will the, the NFL, will this national anthem issue and conflict kind of come back and bite the lead because now they're seems like they're they're daring players now they're they're almost saying everything but boy you better do this but what's your sense of the latest move by the the NFL in terms of this policy and now the NFLPA basically challenging uh, the the owners. Well, I know the NFLPA like announced their statement about what they were going to do earlier this week and. For the record, I just want to be very clear about, like, this statement. Mm. Here goes. It was the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> like, this single dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. Because you have to put this all in perspective. You're the, you're the NFLPA, and you're dealing with the NFL. Mm. We've seen two players blackball. The owners have then came out and said, we're going to give y'all $89 million of hush money for y'all to stop doing all this. Right. Y'all take, take it. Then, out of the blue, we're going to come up with this new anthem policy. Boom, right. it's all over the head. And in your statement that you released this week, you admitted to the fact that the owners lied when they said they had been in contact with you all, and you all come out and say there was no conversations had with us. But now you're saying you're filing this grievance, and in hopes of not taking this to the courtroom, you hope some discussions can be had first. Right, in private. Why do you think these discussions are going to change anything? Why do you keep trying to shake the hand of someone who keeps punching you in the face? Mm-hmm. So I do you not do- understand the, w- the NFLPA. They didn't show it when Cap was getting blackball. They showed up late to the party when Eric Reed got blackballed. They are always late to the party, and when they get to the party, they do not know how to dance. <laughs> do you think this is basically just saving face then? Or trying, not even saving face, but almost a misdirection play. I don't understand what face they have to save left. Like, they're a joke. Like, let's just be honest about this. You keep trying. It's like you want somebody that don't want you. Right. And we, right. we, we've we all seen that happen in relationships with friends we know and how stupid that person looks. And it's like the NFL keeps choosing to look stupid. So, and I'm like, why are you even doing this? So, like, this, this policy is, is done. It, like, it's happening. They're not repealing this. You even got the president laughing and joking at the owners and making fun of them. Like, it is what it is. And it is what it is because y'all let it be this way. So at, the, at this point, though, at this point, what, what do you think? they should do or you know what could they possibly do you know in this in the, in the situation that that the players are in now i don't know what you do to be honest like i, I wish i had an answer the, the the politically correct answer is that there would be this sense of brotherhood that sweeps through the nflpa <laughs> and these men of different 
creeds and, and backgrounds and colors would just come together and take a stand against Roger Goodell. That ain't gonna happen, right? Because they can't even they can't even come together and figure out guaranteed contracts, right? They definitely ain't figuring this out. Like, do you kneel? Do you don't kneel? Do you stay in a locker room? Do you go out? If you go out in the locker room, do you raise your fist? Do you stand there? Do you pray? Do you do like Ray Lewis? Do you get down on both knees? Like, what do they do? But Mm -hmm. this all goes back to my original point that I've been saying for the past year. Once you let the leader of the Players Coalition take that hush money check, it it was over. And that's when this... That's when they lost all hope and power. Well, the, play, right. the Players Coalition thing was like a, a contrived, you know, mini organization, really, right? It wasn't that wasn't even something that that the you know all the players uh, backed at all, you know. One of the, one of the, even yeah. then, like, w- once Kaepernick and Reed left the Players Coalition, the, like right, that's the that, whole. It doesn't make any sense. Gotta do whatever you need to do to get them back, or y'all got to break this coalition up. Right, right, right. Well, it's going to be fascinating in a way to see what happens beginning in training camp because uh, the black ball still continues. The coalition took their little money, took the hush money, but I think there's still core players who really are incensed by all this. Right. Um, and it's going to be clear to see. And I, But I guess as columnists, we lay it out, but also we say, well, this is kind of what people should do. Mm. And mm-hmm. what do you think? You, you know, I mean, I know this is we got to kind of think this through. But what do you think should be done? I mean, this is, we're celebrating like the 50th anniversary of, of the 60s, 68, when you had Smith and Carlos. And, and um, mm-hmm. you know, 68 was one of those years that was worth a decade. Um, mm-hmm. In that spirit, what do you think should happen? You think about Smith and Carlos, who, when they did the Black Fist and at the Olympics, that means they two athletes who took this stand were the best at what they did in their sports on the planet. Right. You look at the players coalition and you look at the guys who've been kneeling. Nobody who is the best at their position has taken a stand yet. Right. You need a Cam Newton to do this or a Russell Wilson or like mm-hmm. somebody you also need some white players besides Chris Long. And, like, Chris Long's been doing a hell of a job. Right. But it's only so much a defensive lineman can do. Like, his face can only go so far in public. Right. Like, you just don't recognize those guys. So, unless you get into Drew Brees, and we know how he feels about this, and Brady said his two little pieces, but unless you got, like, an Aaron Rodgers or Cam Newton remembers that he's from Atlanta and he's black as hell, I don't know what you do because unless you get those top guys to actually drop to a knee or raise the fish, that's really, like if Odell Beckham comes out in the first game of the season and takes a knee, like right. all hell will break loose. Right. 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 But until someone like that is willing to do that on that type of stage that is uncuttable or untradeable, I. I really don't know what you do outside of that. Yeah, that, so you either need you either need big time players, or you need numbers, and I think that's what you're saying. That's that's what they should do. That's what the big name players should take a stand, or you know, in numbers, NFL players uh, should continue to protest. 
because in ter- you know in terms of the the current grievance i mean it could end up the the result of it could be an arbitrator ruling that things go back to the way they were before uh you know before the may ruling and the new policy so it could go back to the way the way they were before where you you know people can come out and kneel and you can't get fine teams can't get fined and all that uh you know we need to we need to keep keep the uh protest going or, or in in honesty in all honesty make it stronger you bring up such a great point that when you look at the history of effective protests from athletes and black athletes um there's been Muhammad Ali champion yeah Smith and Carlos champions uh Jim Brown. Flood, champion i mean you know in other words in in, in our industry you, <laughs> Jim yeah. Brown like you have yeah Jim yeah you got to win. You have to, in our industry. I, I would I would even offer that if Kaepernick had led San Francisco to a couple of Super Bowl wins, we'd be having a different conversation. And he was still inclined to kneel. We'd be having a different conversation. For instance, if 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 the power don't go out at halftime and the Forty ers win that Super Bowl, <laughs> this is a whole different story. We're, we're like a whole different situation. We're talking about it. It is. It absolutely. And, and so I think that's the thing that. Oh, until the winners, the winners decide to step up, is you know it's we will you know be spinning our spinning our our tails. Yes, you need the winners to step up, but you also need the winners who are who ha- or the guys who have won to stop cooning. <laughs> that, that's gonna be tough. That directly right at you, Ray Lewis. <laughs> Y'all didn't know, like that's like. Come on now. I hear you. Right. But that's a, the, the thing right. with that also. Right. But the thing with that also is those are the guys that make the money, make the most money, have the have the endorsements and think they have the most to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And by the way, I think sometimes we give the NFL NBA pass because remember, you know, none of them know during that. Well, not you. But what I'm saying is that, you know, even during the playoffs, what they they hid behind the fact that well you know there's a rule you know we signed a contract that we can't kneel during that is wait a minute damn the contract I mean he, what I mean not not the contract but but the CBA don't hide behind that you know Listen, I mean I, I, the, you know the only reason that the NBA looks so good right now is because the NFL is just that bad. Hey, listen, hey, Carl, so thank you so much, man. This is. As usual, man, you've been great. Pronounce your name correctly, as it's supposed to be pronounced. Karen Phillips on Twitter. You can follow me at Karen Phillips at C A R R O N J P H I L L I P S. Uh, and once again, shout out Serena Williams from Saginaw, Michigan, like myself. All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, Karen, thank you so much, man. It's been great. We're looking for uh, the next scathing <laughs> column. No question. <laughs> Always. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Con Phillips, New York Daily News, telling it like it is. Uh, that wraps up another version of Bill Roden on Sports. I'd like to thank uh, great Jamal Murphy for, you know, holding it down in Manhattan. Follow us on Twitter, uh, the show at Bros Pod. Follow uh, Bill at uh, at WC Roden and follow me at Blackatologist on Twitter. And until next week, see you guys later and God bless.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.